If you've got a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue our study of the good life according to Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. This morning, the title of the sermon is Retaliation and the Good Life. Uh, The section that we're in right now is commonly called the Antitheses, where Jesus is taking a common uh, misinterpretation, a misconception, misuse of the Old Testament, and he's saying, you have heard that it was said, and he gives that teaching, and then he corrects it uh, with his teaching. And so far, we've seen that these topics have largely focused on personal sins that we might struggle with or we might commit against others. Uh, We've looked at anger, lust, divorce, and broken promises. Um, But what do we do when people sin against us? How do we handle the sins committed against us by others? Uh, Since the good life is consistently personal, it involves personal relationships, and humans are flawed and broken people, we're going to consistently have to wrestle with this question of, how do I respond when someone uh, sins against me? And Jesus is going to answer that question for us today. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 38. Hear the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. David says that the law of God is more desirable than much fine gold, and that it's sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb, and there's great reward to those who keep it. So let's listen to God's word now. Uh, Tom Skinner was a famous black evangelist who before his conversion was the leader of one of the toughest gangs, a teenage gang in New York in the 1950s. But his conversion was so dramatic that the very next day after he was converted to Christianity, he left the gang and he committed himself to a life of preaching the gospel. Well, a few weeks after his conversion, he was playing a game of football, and during the game, it was his responsibility to block one of the defensive players, so he blocked his man, and as he was blocking his man, his running back ran into the end zone for a touchdown. So Skinner walked back to the huddle with his teammates, and when he got to the huddle, a white boy jumped in front of him, the boy that he had blocked, jumped in front of him and slammed him in the stomach then whacked him on the back and began kicking him as he fell to the ground and shouted, you dirty black blankety blank, I'll teach you a thing or two. Now normally, Skinner would have jumped up and pulverized this guy. Uh, But Skinner stood up, looked the boy in the face, and he said, you know, because of Jesus Christ, I love you anyways. Uh, The the response surprised everybody. Everybody was shocked, including Skinner himself. He didn't know where that came from. It must have been the Holy Spirit at work inside of him. Uh, But he knew that on his conversion, he was a new creation. And the tit-for-tat revenge and retaliation that he had learned in the gangs had no part of his new life. Uh, Well, after the game... 
uh, the, the player that punched him came up to him and said, Tom, you've done more to knock the prejudice out of me by telling you that you love me than you would have if you socked me in the jaw. Uh, like Skinner, we live in a world filled with violence and injustice. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, how will we respond when others violate or impose or impinge upon our rights? How do we respond when our spouse wrongly criticizes us? How do we respond when our siblings or our friends or the school bully starts picking on us? How we respond when our roommates borrow or steal our food? How we respond when we see, when we try to understand the role of the police and the military and the government in matters of violence and injustice. Um, Jesus' teaching on the sermon here on the Mount does not give us exact details for how we're supposed to answer all those questions, but it does give us some principles to follow. And I think what Jesus shows us is that good life does not come from revenge and retaliation. The good life comes from surrender and sacrifice that's empowered by the gospel. Surrender and sacrifice that is modeled and motivated and given through the personal work of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the way of justice, the way of surrender, and the way of sacrifice. Uh, Kids, when we start to talk about uh, turning the other cheek, why don't you write down what it might look like for you to turn the other cheek? Some now, okay? So first, let's look at the way of justice. Um, Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, okay? Uh, This was a common law for the Jews. It, It was called the law of Talion. You can find it in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19, and it served two important functions for the Israelites. First, it restrained revenge and retaliation, So when a crime was committed against someone else, the natural human instinct would be to retaliate and to retaliate uh, stronger and harder than what someone had done to you, right? There would be a desire for vengeance and then there'd be a retaliation and that retaliation would escalate into uh, bloody feuds and violence. You know, my last name's Hatfield. And every time I introduce myself to people, or not every time, but a lot of times people introduce, introduce myself to people, I say, I'm, hi, I'm Shane Hatfield. And they say, well, have you killed any McCoys lately? And I say, well, is that your last name, McCoy? Not that I know of. You know, I, I'm not related to those Hatfields. But you see, there's that history of violence in the Hatfield and the McCoy family. Well, this uh, law here was meant to restrain that kind of revenge, Right? If, uh, if somebody stole my cow in the Old Testament times and then I went over and I knocked their head off as a result, then guess what? Their family is going to come after me and then my family is going to go after them. But if that initial uh, injustice was met with equal punishment, then it was less likely to resort uh, to turn into revenge and retaliation. So it restrained revenge and retaliation. But the second thing it did was it established a principle of equity in the Jewish courts. Right? It, it, what an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth means is the punishment should fit the crime. Right? Uh, if someone uh, killed my wife in the Old Testament, it was not sufficient just to pay a $100 fine. Right? 
The punishment must fit the crime, right? Uh, but the punishment can't exceed that of the crime. So, so restitution for the offense shouldn't exceed the damages. So this law created a way for justice in the Jewish courts. Now, probably what had happened was that the scribes and the Pharisees had misused this teaching. And what they had done is they had taken it out of the realm of, of courts and judges and laws, and they had extended it into personal conflict. And they used it to justify revenge and retaliation. So a law that was meant to restrain evil was actually being used to justify evil against other people. And Jesus, so what Jesus does is he's correcting their misuse of this law. He starts out by saying, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, this, uh, this phrase here, uh, do not resist the one who is evil, has led to lots of discussion, lots of debate about the role of uh, governments and violence and all those things. I don't have time to go into that, but, but I, what I will say is, what he is, he is not saying that we should eliminate all governments, all laws, all rules, and all authority. That's not what he's saying, right? In fact, God created this world with both a structure and a direction, And in God's structure, God was to rule over creation as its king, and man was to rule over creation as his image bearer. And there is a, a, there, and, and under God's authority, man was supposed to rule in a way that brought God glory, that fulfilled God's will, that extended God's kingdom, and that helped people experience God's goodness. Well, sin came in the world and it broke that authority structure. So that now man rebels against God, and man does not glorify God the way he is supposed to. So God's plan of redemption involved redeeming both the structure and the direction of creation. And as part of that redemption, Jesus rules over all things, right? And there's, there's two kingdoms over which he rules. There's the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And to the kingdom of God, he gave the keys of the kingdom, He gave a ministry that is declarative and ministerial. He gave us the ministry of the word and the sacraments. And to the kingdom of this world, he gave the sword. Romans 13, 1 through 7, describes how the government can be a servant of God, that it is a tool to restrain evil and to promote good. So you have these two kingdoms, Uh, the, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, and those two overlap in some areas, but the church is never to take the sword and the government is never to take the keys. Those are to remain distinct and different. But it is good for the government to use the moral law and to use biblical principles to redeem the structure of this world and to hopefully move it in a way that glorifies God. And if the government does not do that, then it's legitimate for us to try to, to vote or to persuade the government to move its laws and its principles in a way that is more God-honoring within the structure that God has given. It gives a limited biblical justice, but not an ultimate justice. We know the ultimate justice will only come when God's kingdom comes back and the ultimate kingdom reigns here on earth and sin and injustice is removed. That's, 
So that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not talking about doing away with all those structures that would lead to anarchy and more injustice. So what is Jesus talking about? Jesus is saying that when it comes to our personal conflict, Christians practice surrender and sacrifice, not revenge and retaliation. We leave the justice up to God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He will take care of that. He calls us to live the way of surrender and sacrifice. And he gives four examples here that sort of flesh this out. Right, the first one is in verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also. So in the ancient Near Eastern culture, in Jesus' culture, it would have been common not to injure somebody by slapping them, but to insult them. And it's still common there to this day. To slap someone across the face was the highest insult that you could have paid them. And then if you, if you were taken to court and you were sued over it, it could cost you up to a year's wages. So what Jesus is saying here is that when we're insulted, when we are persecuted for our beliefs, when we're unwrongly uh, criticized, what he's saying is don't respond in retaliation. Don't respond with vengeance. Turn the other cheek. Don't retaliate. Surrender. Choose a nonviolent, non-retaliatory response. When it comes to insults, don't pay insult for insult. Now, this doesn't mean that we just go put ourselves in harm's way. This doesn't mean that if someone is uh, attacking our home and they're attacking our family that we can't defend ourselves. But what it's saying is that when someone insults us, especially for our beliefs and persecutes us for our Christian values and principles, that we don't respond with violence and retaliation. That the good life comes through surrender, not through revenge. And the story of Skinner was a great example of this, right? Like culture and circumstances would have totally justified him jumping up and punching that guy in the face, Right? But he knew that he was a new creation. He was a part of God's kingdom. He knew that the way to peace was not through violence, but through peacemaking. I remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall become sons of God. Peacemaking, not violence, describes Jesus' disciples. Uh, so what does that look like for us today? Uh, when your spouse criticizes you? Fairly or unfairly, how do you respond? What is the natural direction of your heart? Is it to retaliate? Is it to criticize them? Is it to bring up that thing that they did years ago that you never talked to them about? Jesus is saying, don't retaliate. He's saying that you have a bazooka in your mouth, not a water gun. What, how do you respond when your siblings are picking on you or when a bully is picking on you or if your friends are roasting you, kids? He's saying, don't return insult for insult. Surrender your, your, your desire to insult, your desire to criticize, your desire to fight back. Uh, surrender that to the Lord and trust him with justice. Uh, when I was a kid, um, I was, uh, I'm not just going to shock you, but I was skinny, 
And I didn't have a, a short man's complex, but I would say I had a skinny man's complex. And anytime anyone insulted me or anytime anyone made fun of me or they questioned my, my size or my strength or my intelligence, I tried to fight back. I tried to show them. If you insulted me, I was going to insult you back. If you punched me, I was going to punch you back. And I will tell you, kids, that I regret every punch and every insult I ever threw. None of it led to peace. It's not the way. And those habits that you're, you're taking on now, if you're, if you're fighting back, if you're insulting, if you're punching, they're going to carry with you into adulthood. Because the reality, adults, is we still fight back too, don't we? It just looks more subtle. We fight back with our words on Facebook. We fight back by uh, turning a cold shoulder to someone who's insulted us. We fight back by ghosting people or blocking people or gossiping about people or slandering about people. We may not use our fists, but we use our words and our keyboards. And Jesus is saying that that type of response is not the response of a citizen in his kingdom. It's not the response that's going to bring the good life. The good life comes through surrendering to God and to his justice, surrendering your, your, desi- your desire to punch or, or kick or insult, surrendering it to God, giving it to him, and absorbing the cost of that pain. And when we do that, that's what is going to change this world. Um, uh, a friend of mine was a college softball player, and uh, she said that when she was in college, she would routinely uh, make fun of her Christian teammates that didn't go out and party and act the way that she did, but they never insulted her. They never criticized for her. And years later, whenever she uh, came back to the faith she, and she began living a godly life, it dawned on her that with every insult she was hurling, her teammates were probably praying for her. And it was their prayers that helped lead her to Christ. Um, Jesus is our example and our motivation for this. Um, what did he do when he was personally attacked? He didn't retaliate. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was scorned. He could have called down a legion of angels to come and defend him, but he didn't do it. And when Peter pulled out his sword to cut off the guy's ear, and he did, he cut it off. Jesus said, Peter, put that sword away. And he healed the man's ear. And in doing that, Jesus laid down a model for us of surrender. And he laid down the motivation for it. Peter says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Until you see that Jesus absorbed the pain and suffering of your sin for you, you'll never be able to absorb the insults that people hurl at you. Because here's the thing, you're always going to be trying to defend yourself, you're always going to be trying to prove yourself, you're always going to be trying to validate yourself. Until Jesus saves you, validates you, protects you, and proves you, you'll never be able to absorb the cost and the pain of somebody insulting you. But if you see that on the cross, Jesus absorbed your, the punishment for your pain, for your sin, for your insults, 
for your retaliation, if you, if you see him absorbing that, then you'll be able to absorb the insults and surrender justice to God. First thing Jesus shows us is the way of surrender, and the second thing Jesus shows us is the way of sacrifice. Uh, these next three examples, we see people sacrificing for others in situations where they go above and beyond what's expected of them. Jesus says that if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, leave him, let him have your cloak as well. So a tunic was an undergarment, right? And then the cloak was a robe that went over that. Legally, someone could sue you for your tunic, but they could not see, sue you for your cloak or your robe because your robe was basically your home. It's what protected you. You could, you could lay on it. You could sleep in it. You could store food in it. It, it was your livelihood. And Jesus is saying that if someone takes your tunic, be so sacrificial, be so willing that you would give them your robe also. He's calling us to a life of sacrifice, um, to give up our security for the good of someone else. He goes on to say, if anyone forces you to go one mile, then go with him two miles. Now, during this time, you had... Uh, the Jewish people lived under Roman occupation, and so you had Roman soldiers that were all over the place. And at any point, a Roman soldier could command a Jewish person to carry his stuff for one mile. And so Jesus is saying that if you're, if you're commandeered to carry a Roman soldier's stuff, don't just carry it one mile, go another mile. Be willing to go two miles. Sacrifice your time for someone else who's infringing upon your rights. He says, sacrifice your personal property, sacrifice your time. And then he says, sacrifice your money. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is, is calling his disciples to be generous to the point of self-sacrifice. These three examples show us that when someone infringes upon our rights, we do the radical, countercultural. Um, crazy act of self-sacrifice. We practice the way of sacrifice instead of retaliation and revenge. Uh, this means that when our spouses, our siblings, our friends, our co-workers, etc., when they wrong us, we look for creative ways to love and sacrifice for them in a way that glorifies God. It doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge their sin. We, do, we can acknowledge their sin. We can say that it was wrong. We can acknowledge the damage that it's done. But in our response, we try to respond with forgiveness and grace and mercy that goes beyond what's normally required of us. Uh, a friend of mine told me a, a story where he did this, and, and um, I was shocked, actually. Uh, but he was, his, his name's Rod. Rod was uh, in... Uh, downtown Atlanta, late at night, he went to a gas station to get gas. And while he's at the pump putting in, putting in gas in his car, a man comes up to him and demands all of his money. And Rod is, Rod is scared to death. He's frightened. He doesn't know what to do. So he says a quick prayer. He says, help me, Jesus. And whenever he says that prayer, uh, fear begins to leave him. And he puts a hand on the man's shoulder the person who's mugging puts a hand on his shoulder and says, what's your name? And the guy says, my name's Charles. And Rod said, Charles, 
Is this really the life that you want for yourself? Mugging people at the gas station? And he said, Charles, put his head down and says no. And Rod said, Charles, Rod began to share the gospel with Charles. He began to tell him how that giving his life to Jesus would give him the life that he wanted and desired, would give him much more life, eternal life, than robbing people at the pump. And he said, Charles, do you want that life? And Charles looked him in the eye and said, yes. And he led him in a prayer of salvation there at the pump where Charles was trying to mug him. And after he led him in that prayer, he gave him a card to a downtown mission at Atlanta, and he sent him on his way, and got, Rod got back in his car and drove off. Rod found a creative, loving, and courageous way to sacrifice for this man, to not return evil for evil. Now, it, it may be totally good and necessary for you to defend yourself at the pump or to run away, I'm not saying that everybody has to respond the way that Rod does. But what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do is to think, how can we think differently about the way we respond to people? How can we think about responding in a way that is loving and sacrificial? Well, you've probably already had this question come up. How do you, what about someone who's abusive, manipulative, or someone who's abusing your gifts? And I thought one author, uh, John Stott, said it best. He kind of describes how to live in this tension. He says... The principle is love, the selfless love of a person who, when injured, refuses to satisfy himself by taking revenge, but studies instead the highest welfare of the other person and of society and determines his reactions accordingly. Thus, the only limit to the Christian's generosity will be a limit which love itself imposes. So you look at this person, you look at this situation, you look at uh, all the factors, and you say, what is most loving for this person? And what is most loving for the people around this person? Right? Since it is unloving to allow people to abuse and manipulate other people, then it is loving to impose boundaries. It is loving to have hard conversations with people. It is loving to sometimes say no to people because it's for their good. The law is love. And again, Jesus provides both the example and the motivation for this. In Philippians 2, Paul's described Jesus' works this way. He says, Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it was Jesus' humiliation, it was his sacrifice that led to his exaltation. And it is our sacrifice and humiliation that will lead us to the good life. As Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for there is the the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who are before you.
The good life does not come through revenge and retaliation. It comes through entrusting God and his justice and living a life of surrender and sacrifice for the good of others. We'll never do it until we see just how much Jesus surrendered and sacrificed for us. Jesus says to turn the other cheek. And when he was beaten, mocked, and scorned, what did he do? He turned the other cheek. He endured the insult. When he was on the cross and the the soldiers and the criminals were mocking him, did did he return insult for insult? No, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He was forced to carry a Roman cross. He was forced to carry it all the way to the hill where he died for us. He was so exhausted he couldn't even carry it. Simon of Cyrene had to help him. He was stripped naked for us. He didn't have a tunic. He didn't have a robe. He was left hanging naked, humiliated on the cross for our sins. He gave himself. We are the beggars. We are the broken, the empty, the poor, the penniless, spiritually. And Jesus gave himself to us. He poured out himself to the point of death. He gave up his entire life so that we could have his righteousness. And until we see that Jesus did all that for us, we will never be able to sacrifice and surrender ourselves to God but we'll never be able to love others the way Jesus has loved us. So let's pray now that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and minds to, li- to believe this gospel, to believe this good news, and to live this way. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this good news that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we don't have to be stuck in endless cycles of revenge and retaliation that hurt others and hurt ourselves. Uh, we can experience the love and grace of Jesus Christ. We can entrust ourselves to your justice and your judgment. And instead, we can live a life of surrender and sacrifice. God, we confess that we cannot do this on our own, that we have retaliated in anger towards our spouses, towards our friends, towards our siblings, and towards our enemies. We have sought revenge. We have sought our own rights and our own needs over and against others. We confess those sins and we ask that you would forgive us in the name of Jesus. We ask that you would show us the beauty of his surrender and his sacrifice. And we pray that you would renovate our hearts so that we might experience the good life here on earth and we might express your good life to a lost and dying world. We pray ultimately that our our ultimate hope would not be justice on this earth, but peace in heaven with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The Lord's Supper is not the meal for those who have never retaliated. It's not the meal for those who have never sought revenge. It is a meal for those who have retaliated and who have sought revenge, but have came to Jesus and asked for forgiveness. It is the meal for those who have uh, entrusted Jesus with the judgment of this world and with their own judgment. So if you're a, a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're a member in good standing of his church, and we invite you to come and eat of this meal and and eat of his love and justice. As you take the bread, you think about how his body was broken for your sin, and as you drink the wine, you think about how his blood was poured out for you and let that his goodness, love, and mercy well up in your heart.
so that you can show the same goodness, love, and mercy to others. If you've not put your faith in Christ, then we'd ask that you sit and wait and pray and ask yourself, what would it be like to have that life? Do you want more from life? Are you like uh, Charles at the pump trying to mug people to get the respect, honor, glory, validation that you desire? Because you don't have Christ? If that's you, then ask God to save you. Ask God to show you the good life and give you a better life. Let's pray together.